Due to the graphic nature of these Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture, murder, and government incompetence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. November 12, 1981. Martha Ochoa rushed across the quad of the University of Antioquia in Medellin, Colombia. If anyone in the world should have felt safe walking across campus, it was Martha. Her older brothers ran the Medellin cartel, the most vicious, infamous cocaine cartel in the world. The Ochoa family was all but untouchable. But as she made her way across the grassy plaza, she heard a noise behind her. She turned to see a town car speeding towards her across the quad. Her feet carried her toward a building, towards safety, but she couldn't outrun a speeding car. She was forced into the back seat at the point of an AK-47. The kidnappers had put the Medellin cartel in a vulnerable position. If they paid the $15 million ransom, they'd look weak. If they didn't, Martha would die. They needed help, but who had the power to help them? 200 miles away, Gilberto Orihuela, godfather of the Cali cartel, answered the phone. His rival's nervous humility sounded foreign, unlike him. The Medellin cartel was asking for his help. In that moment, Gilberto held life and death power over his biggest competitor. The future of both their organizations hung in the balance. He replied, yes, of course we will. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is the first of a four-part series on Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela, brothers who made up half of the Cali cartel in Colombia. This week, we'll take a look at how the brothers became the leaders of one of the world's most successful cocaine cartels in the 1970s. Next week, we'll look at the incredible, almost mythic circumstances that allowed them to rise to power. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. In 1974, a rusty old Mazda pulled up outside the Workers' Bank in Cali, Colombia. The man who stepped out looked like any other businessman. Sharp suit, neatly trimmed beard, cunning eyes. He marched inside and headed straight for the boardroom. His name was Gilberto Orihuela, and he had just been appointed as the chairman of the bank's board of directors. He had some ideas for a shakeup in company policy. He strode into the boardroom and stood at the head of the table. 
a dead silence fell over the room. He looked over the terrified bankers and businessmen and thought about the best way to deliver his proposal. He had millions of dollars of money to launder, and the workers' bank was going to help him do it. When we think Colombian drug lords, most of us picture megalomaniacal cocaine addicts feuding over profits at the business end of an AK-47. Rarely do we picture businessmen in boardrooms, overseeing the branding and public outreach sectors of their expansive empire. The Orihuela brothers were two such entrepreneurial anomalies. Starting with a single drugstore in the poor barrios of Cali, they toiled and bled to buy out 250 drugstores, 50 bars, dozens of shopping centers, restaurants, car dealerships, and apartment buildings. They owned banks, pharmaceutical laboratories, and soccer teams. They ran the city of Santiago de Cali, Colombia, known as Cali for short. Their businesses employed tens of thousands of people. The billions of dollars in taxes they paid each year allowed all of Colombia to prosper. And behind the honorable veil of their legitimate businesses and legal investments, they processed and shipped thousands of kilograms of cocaine to the United States and Europe. It was more than a cartel. It was a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that operated so sustainably, so discreetly, that it would baffle the CIA, the DEA, and American presidential administrations for three decades. When American authorities finally began to suspect the Orihuela Empire was involved in drug trafficking, it was almost impossible to penetrate the layers of protection, both legal and illegal, that they'd built around themselves. Gilberto was a businessman through and through. He ruled with litigation, suing anyone who dared to accuse them of illegal activities. His younger brother Miguel took care of the violence when it became necessary. But it rarely became necessary. Instead of terrorizing the locals, they earned respect by fueling the country's economy. They made themselves synonymous with prosperity, progress, and a proud national identity. Slavery, however, comes in many forms, and it often cloaks itself in another man's success. Eventually, the prosperity fostered by the Cali cartel would become a yoke around Colombia's neck. The cartel became almost impossible to remove without destroying the nation. What the Orihuela brothers became was a far cry from where they started. They'd clawed their way out of poverty with ruthless ambition. The lives of the Orihuela brothers are mired in mystery. They lived mostly in the shadows, keeping a low profile and keeping the focus on their more legitimate pursuits. One aspect of their story remains the same no matter who's telling it. They came from humble origins and rocketed to success in record time. The Orihuela family came from a poor barrio near Mariquita, Tolima, Colombia. Gilberto was born on January 30, 1939. His brother Miguel followed four years later. They were just two of the family's six children. But even early on, the brothers had a special bond, a shared ambition. By all accounts, their childhoods were relatively normal, although they were poor and envious of luxury. They were both common sights on the local soccer field 
and both dreamed of owning a soccer team of their very own. By the time he was in high school, Hilberto set his sights beyond his reality and began dreaming of who he could be. He wanted a bigger and better life than the one he'd been born into. But college was a dream far too expensive for the Orihuela family. Even finishing high school seemed like a waste of time when there were bills to pay and young mouths to feed. So in 1954, 15-year-old Gilberto dropped out of school and went to work as a clerk in a local drugstore. By age 20, Gilberto was promoted to become the store's manager. By age 25, he quit to start his own drugstore called Drogas La Rabaja, Discount Drugs. In just a couple of years, he'd expanded his one store into half a dozen. A poor 25-year-old who just opened his first business became a franchise owner practically overnight. It left many wondering where he'd found the funds. Finding a satisfactory answer to that question requires a bit of sleuthing. Let's take another look at that normal, hopeful childhood the Orihuelas claimed to have. Gilberto and Miguel had a childhood friend by the name of Jose Santa Cruz Londoño, who they called Chepe for short. The three were very close, and by the time the Orihuelas realized college wasn't in the cards for them, they devised another strategy to get ahead in life, by kidnapping people for quick cash. Kidnapping was a common occurrence in Colombia in the 1960s. Guerrilla groups were known to ambush people on isolated roads and hold them for ransom. Gilberto, Miguel, and Chepe would have seen this happening on a regular basis. Perhaps that's why, in 1954, the same year Gilberto dropped out of school, the three boys began committing their own kidnappings. Gilberto was 15, and Miguel and Chepe were only 11. Between then and 1967, when Gilberto was 28 and Miguel and Chepe were 24, they successfully ransomed at least four people on their own. They also joined a kidnapping gang with a nearly 100% success rate. Gilberto used that ransom money to open his drugstores. Chepe went to college to study engineering, and he also purchased cars to start his own taxi fleet. This would become their signature move, funneling illicit funds into legitimate thriving businesses. Then, in 1967, the three young men pulled off the kidnapping that would change their lives forever. The details of this crime are practically non-existent, but we do know that they successfully kidnapped and ransomed a student and a Swiss diplomat for nearly $700,000, which would be worth approximately $5 million today. With that money, they decided to invest in drug trafficking, an industry that rewarded discretion and intelligence with more money than anyone could ever spend in one lifetime. Gilberto, Miguel, and Chepe initially decided to invest in marijuana, the most popular of all Colombian drugs. But marijuana required land to grow. It was heavy, bulky, and difficult for their human mules to transport. And the street price was just too low to make it worth the risk. They quickly shifted focus to another drug, cocaine. It was lighter, could be processed in bigger batches, was easier to hide, 
and sold for a hell of a lot more. In the 1970s, a single kilo of cocaine could sell for 15,000 US dollars. That's for a full kilo wholesale. The dealers could then cut it with fillers and sell it in small portions, which jacked the price up even higher. Cocaine would be a brand new world for all of them. And it would be well worth the effort, thanks in part to the drug's unusual history. Cocaine is extracted from the coca plant, which is indigenous to Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. It was first extracted in 1855, and by the 1900s, it could be found in everything from soda to cough drops. It was about as available as Advil is today. Once the drug was restricted in the U.S. in 1914, its rarity only fueled people's curiosity. During the Prohibition, cocaine became known as the champagne of drugs. High class, fun, and very expensive. By the 60s and 70s, cocaine was a relatively obscure drug. It made its appearances at elite social events, but it was rarely seen on the streets. The DEA was too busy trying to stop the heroin epidemic to worry about an expensive party drug that was mostly used by celebrities and rock stars. Much of the cocaine that was available at the time was a result of Fidel Castro's Cuban takeover in 1959. He cracked down on his country's mafiosos, and many of them fled for greener pastures in Colombia. By 1968, the fleeing Cubans had formed La Compañía, a cartel that processed and trafficked cocaine. It employed mostly Colombians, many of whom began watching their Cuban bosses and secretly learned the trade for themselves. There was already a thriving heroin smuggling network across South America, and La Compañía used those same routes to move their cocaine. Heroin was still the dominant product until April of 1973, when a major sting operation called Operation Springboard brought down 14 major heroin traffickers across the continent. The drug vacuum was quickly filled with cocaine. It's safe to assume that the Orihuelas were inspired at least in part by watching the success of La Compañía, as well as dozens of smaller independent cocaine processors across Cali. They were even more inspired when the Colombians working for La Compañía including Pablo Escobar and the Ochoa brothers, murdered and expelled their Cuban predecessors and began processing cocaine for themselves. Their operation became known as the Medellin Cartel. The violent ousting of their Cuban bosses earned them notoriety from the jump. Despite the wicked turn the Medellin Cartel had taken, cocaine still had a relatively peaceful reputation compared to heroin. Throughout the early 70s, it wasn't on the DEA's radar at all. Cocaine's coquettish reputation appealed to Gilberto Orihuela's shrewd business sense. Though processing cocaine required more steps than harvesting weed, the payoff would be a thousand times sweeter, and the Orihuelas could remain hidden from law enforcement for far longer. So as Pablo Escobar and the Ochoa brothers began building their cocaine empire in Medellin, the Orihuelas and Chepe Santa Cruz opened their own operations 200 miles away in Cali. The distance between them allowed them to grow in relative isolation from one another. 
Where the Medellin cartel had a violent reputation from the start, the Cali cartel was quiet, almost invisible, and grew slowly. Hilberto was much more of a businessman than he was a criminal. His workers described him as articulate and charming. He was far more interested in long-term investing than ruthless violence, and it set him apart early. The Medellin and Cali cartels would in many ways become mirror opposites of one another. Light versus dark. Manipulative versus violent. Secretive versus ostentatious. And this is where the story gets murky. When we return, we'll take a look at how mythical the Cali cartel's origins are and how staying under the radar transformed them from upstart entrepreneurs into kingpins. Now, back to the story. As teenagers and young adults, Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela had found a way to move up in the world by investing in drug enterprises, both legal and illegal. By the time they were in their 30s, between 1973 and 1975, the Orihuelas and their friend Chepe Santa Cruz began building their cocaine empire in Cali, Colombia. The stories and news articles about the early years of the Cali cartel make it difficult to parse truth from fiction. Dates become general. Long stretches of time pass without anything happening at all, only for the Cali cartel to emerge with vast amounts of money and infrastructure already built. Unlike their increasingly violent and ostentatious Medellin neighbors, the godfathers of the Cali cartel did everything in their power to remain hidden from the public as they were learning the ways of drug trafficking. There wasn't a blueprint for this sort of business. This was nothing like Gilberto's legal franchise of drugstores. Every single rung of the drug-running ladder was slicked with the sweat of men who had come before, tried in vain to climb, and fallen off into the clutches of the law. As head of the Cali cartel, Gilberto Orihuela would earn the nickname the chess player for his clever strategy and meticulous nature. He was determined to see every foundational brick in their empire laid with patience and precision. He made sure that if one brick crumbled, it wouldn't destroy the entire pyramid. Every department in the Cali cartel would operate as an independent cell so even if one department was lost, the cartel would survive. The coca processing branch never interacted with the distributors. Distributors never interacted with anyone except the man who ran the local stash house. Street dealers were told nothing beyond their personal assignment for the day. Gilberto's strengths lied in strategy, big picture dealing, and maintaining the legitimate businesses they'd use to launder their money. For now, that meant his drugstore franchise, which was expanding by the day. Miguel Orihuela, on the other hand, thrived on details. Miguel became Gilberto's day-to-day point man, driving between departments and dealing with the managers of each, shipping, processing, distribution, execution. Miguel was also the cartel's resident muscle man. He was responsible for dealing with anyone who stood in the way of the cartel's progress, either through threats of litigation or, if necessary, threats against their families. 
but the most important task by far was crafting the product. Cocaine processing was a beast unto itself. Before leaving the coca farms in Peru and Bolivia, coca leaves had to be processed into coca paste. This is usually done in one of two ways. The traditional process involves digging pits in the ground and lining them with heavy plastic. Water and hydrochloric acid are poured into the pit, and then the coca leaves are added. Then men and women begin stomping the leaves into mush in the same way traditional winemakers mash grapes. Over time, a film rises to the top of the pit. This is siphoned off into another clean pit to which cement, kerosene, and diesel fuel are added to neutralize the acids. The second, more modern form of this process takes place in metal drums instead of underground pits and uses gasoline instead of kerosene. The rest of the steps are more or less the same, resulting in a pure, unrefined coca paste, ready to be shipped off and processed into cocaine. With the last of their seed money from their old kidnapping schemes, the Orihuela brothers bought their first light plane. It could be flown by a single person and disemboweled of unnecessary equipment so it could carry as much product as possible. Miguel found a pilot he trusted, and they began shipping coca paste from Peru and Bolivia into Colombia. It was a big first step, and it wasn't without its failures. Both Orihuelas were caught at least once in the process of moving coca into the country, and Chepe Santa Cruz was arrested at least twice for it. But Gilberto had planned for this inevitability. The cartel's stable of lawyers were always on hand to help them out. In the early days, Gilberto spent just a single night in jail for coca smuggling. Gilberto went a step further and bought the equipment and cooperation they needed to prepare a litany of fake identities for all three godfathers. In the event they were arrested, they'd hand over fake documents so there would be no arrest record under their actual names. It worked. In fact, it worked so well that the DEA has admitted these fake identities make it almost impossible to track the early history of the cartel. Just within the first five years of their enterprise, from 1970 to 1975, the DEA believes the Cali cartel leaders used over 50 fake identities, each of which had its own passport and driver's license. These fake IDs came in handy when they were stopped with plane loads of illegal coca paste. Once the coca paste made it to Colombia, it had to be processed into cocaine. Fortunately, because of Gilberto's ever-expanding drugstore chain, they had plenty of excuses to buy additional buildings across Cali to use as processing labs. They could have simply finished the processing by mixing the paste with ether hydrochloric acid. However, they discovered a technique to make their cocaine five times as valuable by increasing its purity. This was done by dissolving the paste in water mixed with potassium permanganate and then using ammonia to turn it back into a solid paste. The last stage was the most volatile. The chemicals and equipment were extremely expensive and highly explosive. The cocaine paste was dissolved in acetone and water and heated for several slow, agonizing hours until it could be mixed with ether. 
a final addition of hydrochloric acid formed the tiny white crystals we'd recognize as cocaine. The Cali cartel lucked into an early break as they were building their processing infrastructure, thanks in part to good old American meddling. In 1973, the epicenter of cocaine processing wasn't Colombia, but Chile. Chile produced some of the world's purest product, so pure that dealers had to cut it with baking powder or their customers would overdose. U.S. authorities had known about Chile's dangerously pure product for a while, but extradition from Chile was illegal until 1973, when Augusto Pinochet seized control in a military coup. To improve American-Chilean relations, he had 23 drug processors arrested and flown to the United States to stand trial. Panic spread and Chile's remaining drug processors bolted for Colombia in mass. When it came time to staff up his own drug labs, Gilberto Orihuela had his pick of the world's most accomplished cocaine refiners. Then, something even more fortuitous happened. At the same time in the early 1970s, Colombia's textile industry crumbled due to competition with Asian territories. Thousands of Colombians left to search for better employment in other countries, like the U.S. When the Cali cartel began laying the groundwork for distribution in the U.S., they already had plenty of Colombian friends who were desperate for work and willing to help. And most of them had settled in the same place, New York City. Coming up... We'll look at how the Orihuela brothers took New York by storm. Now, back to the story. In 1973, the Cali cartel had all the pieces in place for an international cocaine empire. Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela controlled the processing labs in Colombia, while their friend Chepe Santa Cruz managed the cartel's distribution in New York City. The equal distribution of responsibilities among the three godfathers became a signature of the group. Where most other cartels inevitably fell apart due to infighting and ego, the three heads of the Cali cartel were comfortable leaving each other to their specific tasks. No one ever overstepped their role, and big decisions were made together without fuss. With Chepe in New York and the Orihuelas running their South American circuits, the money began rolling in. They even welcomed a fourth godfather to their leadership board. Helmer Herrera, whom they called Pacho, took over the cartel's money laundering departments. This move confused law enforcement even further. Despite the constant battles for power within other cartels, Cali trusted an outsider to manage all of their money. Keeping the individual departments autonomous had been Gilberto's brainchild from the start. By making each branch of the operation its own separate business with its own separate leadership, the cartel could lose anyone, even one of the godfathers, without the entire empire falling. Right from the start, no single person outside of the four godfathers knew more than their own small fragment of the operation. They doled out tasks with efficiency and complete secrecy. Over in New York City, the distribution cell leader in a specific neighborhood would receive a message on his beeper telling him to visit a randomly selected payphone. 
Every phone in the city was numbered, and Callie kept records of exactly who called and from where. Each man was given a code number, essentially an employee ID, that he would give when making the call. The distributor would be given a list of names and phone numbers of dealers around the city, and he would contact them using a different payphone each time. Then the distributor would deliver each dealer's allotment of cocaine to predetermined locations. The dealers would be given a time to come pick it up, long after the distributor was gone. This way, even if one man was arrested and was dumb enough to try and rat out the cartel, he legitimately wouldn't know enough to do any real harm. And because of the meticulous records of schedules and code numbers, if a shipment or money went missing, the Cali cartel would know exactly who to blame. In an unusual move, the Godfathers decided to set up distribution on a consignment basis. Each dealer would be given two kilos of cocaine on credit with a deadline to repay the value. If someone failed to hold up their end of the deal, they knew what the consequences would be. Every single prospective employee had to do a phone interview and submit a list of the names and addresses of every living family member they had. Every name was a piece of collateral the cartel could hold against them if they misbehaved. Anyone found to be withholding names was dismissed from consideration immediately. This also served as a valuable recruitment tool. Employees would often wrangle their family members into working for the cartel, too. Since the cartel already knew their names, they were already in the game. If a potential employee passed the screening, they were faxed a list of rules. It was like Fight Club. The first two rules were do not talk about the Cali cartel. That is, no ratting, no chatting. It went without saying that their families would suffer if they ever broke the top rules. The next rule, no decadence. Every worker was a reflection of the cartel. To avoid drawing attention to the business, they were expected to maintain the illusion that they lived moderately and legitimately. Even the four godfathers drove around Cali in old Mazdas to avoid suspicion. They expected the same discretion from their employees. Stash house workers were told to leave in the morning and return in the evening as if pretending to go to work. Dealers were told to shop for clothing in the neighborhoods where they sold to blend in with their customers. Many of the upper middle management workers were given counterfeit identities so they could live as a blue collar worker during the day, but party like the cartel men they were at night. After all, this line of work paid very well. After the employees received the faxed list of rules, they were told to memorize them and burn the paper. Remembering the rules was the employee's responsibility and the repercussions for forgetting would be quick and brutal. The Cali cartel formally staked its claim on New York City in 1973 and began moving small shipments of cocaine into the city via human mules. A year later, Gilberto took the next logical step to secure the business's future. In 1974, two investment firms founded by the Banco de Trabajadores, the Workers' Bank, 
This was a legitimate business unrelated to the cartels, set up to help the average citizen stake their claim in Colombia's future. But within a few months, Hilberto had managed to get himself appointed as the bank's chairman of the board of directors. To avoid ruffling feathers, he gifted stock in the bank to local businessmen and government officials. He made it a company practice to overlook overdraft fees for anyone who was loyal to the cartel. With a bank under their control and local officials in their pocket, the Cali cartel had no problem laundering money, even though they were only pulling in a few million per year which was easy to launder through Gilberto's drugstores, they knew that soon they would need to streamline the process. The Workers' Bank would help them do it. Gilberto had a reputation as a savvy, respectable businessman. However, in reality, he was just as comfortable with violence as anyone in the drug business must be. While he was playing the part of the bank chairman, his brother Miguel was on the ground and in the action 24-7. Employees would whisper warnings to each other when they noticed him on site. He earned the nickname Lemon because he was always in a foul mood. Lemon, of course, was a polite way of calling him an uptight bastard. Unlike his brother, Miguel had zero sense of humor. He had cold eyes and he preferred swift violence to verbal negotiation. He would later become notorious for having men executed and then sleeping with their wives. Speaking of wives, we'd be remiss not to mention the peculiar personal lives of the Orihuela brothers. As we already know, Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela reveled in doing the unexpected. Gilberto had three wives, while Miguel had four. And we don't mean they divorced and remarried, we mean simultaneously. Polygamy isn't technically legal in Colombia, but for all intents and purposes, they considered these many mistresses to be their wives. Gilberto and Miguel had their own houses, and each woman had their own house as well. They sort of hopped around between the properties. Sometimes the brothers would stay in the homes of individual wives. Sometimes a woman would join one of the men in their own home. Unfortunately, the dates and details of these unions are elusive. That said, we do know that neither man had an easy time catering to multiple women at once. Miguel's wives hated each other. He had to pay his housekeeping staff extra to rearrange his house every time one wife left and another arrived to maintain the illusion no other woman had been there. To pull this off, one housekeeper took meticulous photographs after each woman left the house. Before they arrived for their next visit, the housekeeper went through every room and rearranged every piece of furniture, every item of clothing, every plate in the kitchen to exactly how it had been when they left. In this way, the four women could maintain the illusion that Miguel was theirs and theirs alone. These ploys weren't always successful. Whenever a wife would notice something out of place, their ill temper affected cartel operations for days afterward. Over the course of their free lives, both men fathered eight children each, but the births of their children are also difficult to tack down. We know, for example, that on November 19, 1971, in the very early days of the would-be cartel, Gilberto's son Jorge was born. But even then, Jorge's location of birth is given as either 
Ciudad Jardín, Colombia, or Dover, Delaware. Subterfuge and misdirection were the bread and butter of the Cali cartel, and the primary reason for their slow but methodical rise to power. But even though we can't see what went on behind the curtain, that doesn't mean the Godfathers weren't hard at work. Or that they weren't on the DEA's radar. In 1975, Cali's fourth godfather, Pacho Herrera, was arrested for cocaine smuggling in New York City. However, because Gilberto had built the business so it could lose a limb without being devoured, the DEA had no way of knowing that Pacho even worked for the Orihuelas. They simply mistook him for a low-level independent dealer. On September 10, 1975, the Colombian Customs Agency published a drug trafficking report of the country's top 100 most successful drug runners. Gilberto Orihuela and Miguel Orihuela ranked in the 58th and 62nd positions, respectively. The impressive part is that they were so low on the list. Those rankings are for the men as individuals. No one even knew that the two brothers and Chepe Santa Cruz were part of the same organization. As the Cali cartel was strengthening the foundation of their empire in Colombia and New York, the rest of the world's eyes were glued to the chaotic melodrama unfolding with their neighbors to the north in Medellin. Pablo Escobar and his associates had already been linked to the growing cocaine epidemic and surge in drug-related crimes in Miami, Florida. Authorities were seizing ships and planes and raiding warehouses, and in response, the Medellin cartel was doubling down on its gratuitous violence. In 1979, Medellin hitmen shot two drug traffickers and two innocent bystanders at a crowded shopping mall in Florida and the United States threw the collective weight of its law enforcement bureaus into taking down the Medellin cartel. And all the while, Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela and Chepe Santa Cruz were quietly running an underground empire in New York City, profiting from the bloody distraction in Florida. In fact, the DEA would later admit that at the time, they didn't even know the Cali cartel existed. The Orihuelas and Chepe worked so discreetly that no law enforcement office even looked their way. The U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Crescencio Arcos, would later say, Our sense was that the thugs from Medellin were more insidious. Escobar was your typical gold-chain, fancy-car gangster who liked the flamboyant lifestyle. The traffickers in Cali, on the other hand, were low-key and manipulative. We call them criminals with Gucci slippers. By the time anyone knew what they were doing, hundreds of companies, neighborhoods, and cottage industries were already on the Cali payroll. They didn't just own people, they owned entire cities, media corporations, police forces. They even owned the wiretapping companies the DEA would try to use to bring them down. The Cali cartel laid down roots strong enough to weather whatever storms might come. As they entered the 1980s, Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela set their eyes on a new goal. They would no longer hide in the shadow of the Medellin cartel. They would befriend them, go to war with them, and eventually supplant them as the international kings of cocaine. 
Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore how the Oruelas broke the mold and transformed the Cali cartel into an operation that would best all their rivals. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.